Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To coin a phrase, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. It's been a once-in-a-generation triumph for the Conservative Party, but a once-in-its-history disaster for Labour. It's Labour's fourth successive election defeat, and they were facing a Conservative Party which had already been in power for nearly a decade. Labour gained just one new seat in the whole country and lost nearly 60. Burnley, Bolsover, Blythe Valley, Redcar, Darlington, Dudley North, Great Grimsby, the Labour heartlands have turned blue. People inside the party aren't holding back. They say it's not their worst election result since 1983, not since 1935, but their worst election result ever, bar none. The temptation is to race ahead. When's Jeremy Corbyn going to leave? Who are the runners and riders to replace him? But first, let's pause and let's examine the anatomy of a catastrophe. I'm Basha Cummings and welcome to the Tortoise Podcast. Five weeks ago, on the hunch that the Corbyn project was headed for disaster, we commissioned Britain's most experienced political journalist, Phil Webster, to get into the Labour Party machine, to rummage through his contacts book and find out how it looked on the inside. Phil's going to join me in this podcast to dissect where it all went wrong for Labour, but first, let's start in sunnier times. Glastonbury, June 27th, 2017. This is after Labour has just lost that year's general election and the British rapper Stormzy is on stage, but the crowd has taken over. So remarkably, last night in Conservative headquarters, people had stolen that anthem and they were singing Oh, Isaac Levido, and that's the strategist who had run and delivered the Tory campaign. And defeated Labour candidates and old-timers in the party were singing a very different tune. There's no hiding place from the result of the election this evening. It's devastating for our party. It's devastating for the communities that we seek to represent. And frankly, it's devastating for our country. I actually don't think I ever expected it to be this bad, but... For it to be bad um, and now I'm, I'm devastated that I don't know how you could have any other reaction other than being utterly heartbroken. I never dreamt for a moment that we would go below 200 seats I mean that is that is terrible and gone backwards. Those were the current Labour MPs Keir Starmer and Jess Phillips and former Labour cabinet minister Alan Johnson. 
So there's the journey from chants of adulation at Glastonbury to a chorus of despair. Chris Cook, fellow editor of mine here at Tortoise, has been up all night. Chris, are they right? How bad is it? So there are a couple of ways to think about this as a problem, and all of them tell you this is incredibly bad. So the simplest and easiest way to think of it is that we're nine years into a Tory government and the main opposition party has just lost 59 seats. This really isn't supposed to happen. At this point in the cycle, you'd expect that the opposition would basically be naturally eroding the base of the government. The thing is, though, actually, I think it's just looking at that that headline number, 59 seats. First past the post has this this effect known as the squeeze effect, right? So so when there are two clear parties in the lead in a seat in an election, when you next hold a vote, those two parties spend a lot of their time telling people who want to vote for the third or fourth or fifth party, don't bother. This is first past the post. Voting for them is a waste of time. And it means it's just really hard if you're in those lower slots to break out of those slots. And one of the reasons why Labour activists should be pretty glum today, one of the many reasons, is that basically they were the main opposition party in most of the country. They were in first or second place in 560-odd seats uh, yesterday. Today, they're in first or second place in only about 500. So there are about 60 seats, a huge wedge of the country, where they are in a really bad place. There's been sort of focus on the, the loss of seats, you know, in the northeast where they lost seven seats or in the northwest where they lost 13 seats. But actually the the loss of the second places is pretty pronounced in places like the southeast in particular where the liberals have, have swept under their feet. There are about 30 seats there where they were the main opposition and now they're in third place. So Chris, it sounds like what you're saying is this is a 10-year issue for Labour, not just to the next election. There's like a non-linearity in First Post the Post, which means that Switching ranks, going from second place to third place, is a big deal and it makes it exponentially harder. You can't say that there's not going to be a 20-point swing one way, then you know a 20-point swing back the other way is impossible. But if there is going to be a swing back against the Tories in lots of these places, it's not going to be Labour who are properly placed to uh, exploit that, that energy. What is the point of the Labour Party if we don't respect and represent those voices? people we have not listened to or respected enough. It's the worst night for the Labour Party since 1935. And I, I, to be honest, I I want to apologise to all those people because we, the Labour Party, have failed to deliver the Labour government um, that I think that so many people were hoping and praying for. Desperately, desperately disappointed. I am surprised in in some ways, but unsurprised in others. Look, I'm extremely honoured that the people of Walthamstow have yet again voted for me to be their MP and acutely conscious they don't just need a Labour MP, they need a Labour government. And I can't pretend that what is happening across the rest of the country isn't absolutely devastating. I'm, I'm gutted to see very, very good colleagues who I know, just like me, are passionate about their local communities, passionate about this country, not being returned to Parliament. So that was Caroline Flint, Chris Bryant, Ian Lavery and Stella Creasy. For Labour, this is shocking, but not a surprise. And in fact, thanks to a smart call by my fellow editor here at Tortoise, Dave Taylor, for weeks we've had one of Britain's best political reporters, the best, we'd say, Phil Webster, preparing for exactly this moment. He hasn't been writing daily updates about Labour during the campaign, but he's been talking to some of their top people, getting inside their election team to understand their strategy, and he's here with me. Hi, Phil. 
Hi. Welcome. When did things start to go really wrong for Corbyn after that sort of strange post-defeat high in 2017? And when did people inside the Labour machine know it? I think a lot of people in the Labour Party suspected it even then. And they were surprised by how well Labour had done in 2017. But it took some time to convince Corbyn and the people around him that he hadn't actually won that election. Mm. They behaved as if they'd won it for quite a long time. Now, what's happened is that the public have had another two and a half years to get to know this guy. And they don't particularly like what they see. There have been huge questions placed over his patriotism. If you ask me what the one big incident that went really wrong for Corbyn and saw his public image take a big knock, it was the way he handled the Salisbury poisoning. Yeah. His failure then to come out and condemn what was obviously a state-backed mm. move left people thinking, God, is this guy really pro-British? Is he, is he mm. patriotic? And that patriotism question um, was hanging not, over him for so long. How did they not realise that sooner? You know, that, that was more than, you know, nearly 18 months ago now. It was. I think, I think, that's, I think they have realised it sooner. I think the mass enthusiasm among the young for Corbyn on the university campuses, whatever, has, has long gone. I think people, the question marks over him have been there. But the party, the party apparatchiks, didn't catch up with this change of mood. They thought that Corbyn could go out there and do it again in late 2019, mm. as he had done in 2017. As it became clear that he was losing support and they were sort of really hunkering down, the people close to him, perhaps burying their heads in the sand, and you heard people like Ian Austin going on the BBC. There's only two people who can be Prime Minister on December the 13th, Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson. And I think Jeremy Corbyn is completely unfit to lead our country, completely unfit to lead the Labour Party. And after 34 years of... I joined the Labour Party as a teenager... I worked for the Labour Party. You know, in my 30s, I was a government advisor. In my 40s, I was an MP and a, and a minister. But So it's really come to something when I tell decent, traditional, patriotic Labour voters that they should be voting for Boris Johnson at this election. How did he cope with attacks as sort of as, as violent as that? And how did they not realise at that moment that things were going badly wrong? Well, they knew it was bad, but they chose to ignore it. Mm. And Ian Austin and John Woodcock, his Labour colleague, by coming out and, and, and saying to Labour people, you should be voting Boris Johnson because he's safer. That obviously struck a chord. It caught the mood in the in Labour areas, the, this feeling that the, the guy who now leads the party that their fathers and mothers and grandparents had always supported mm. wasn't actually a necessarily a great supporter <laughs> of of the UK. But did they then try and make decisions about where not to deploy him or how to better deploy him? I mean, how did that trickle into the way in which they started to run the campaign differently? I think the did? people, from what I picked up, was that the people running the campaign, the people who really mattered running the campaign, are all true Corbynites. These were the people who made the decisions as to where he went. And I suppose even though they knew there was a toxicity about their leader, they couldn't avoid putting him out there. And they hoped that he could work the magic in their eyes that he'd worked in 2017. 
But the the main concern of these Corbynites around uh, around the leader was not to give prominence to members of the shadow cabinet who took a different view on Europe than yeah. than the line that had been painfully agreed in the run-up to the election. My role and the role of our government will be to ensure that that referendum is held in a fair atmosphere and we will abide by the result of it. And I will adopt, as Prime Minister if I am at the time, a neutral stance so that I can credibly carry out the results of that to bring our communities and country together. He would stay neutral yeah. about a... Uh, a negotiated settlement of which he'd been in yeah. charge. It was laughable. Was it was laughable. Moment. It was yeah. hopeless. Yeah. And it wouldn't last. And there were, uh, the, for that reason, the team Corbyn decided that those people who took a strong remain Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Like Emily Thornbury, like Keir Starmer, the you know, the shadow foreign secretary, the shadow Brexit secretary yeah. were kept in the cupboard, as I as yeah. I as yeah. I've said. Yeah. And um and so we had this weird business going on of northern pro-Brexit spokesmen being put out, particularly late in the campaign, to try and counter what they had by then picked up, which was this antipathy in the Leave areas. Uh we're Formerly, they'd been Labour MPs, to the fact that they had changed mm. the policy. It all happened too late. Okay, so let's move to the sort of the cast of people around Corbyn, because as you said, this this was a failure of leadership. But he was sort of propped up by some some key figures. What were the arguments playing out between them? And, and you've characterised it in an article that you've written for Tortoise Today as a kind of kamikaze battle plan. Yeah, I mean. As I say, from the start, there was, uh, among that strategy team in Labour's Southside headquarters, there was fear that they were ignoring ignoring the, um, the seats that they held in the North. They felt that um, by going for an all-out offensive strategy, um, in the belief that they could do a repeat of 2017, would fail. Mm. 
Um, but you then had Carrie Murphy taking over the whole campaign and daily meetings, daily phone calls with the Corbyn team. And they deluded themselves for far too long into thinking that they could gain seats rather than hold on to what they'd got. And it was with only about, I think, less than two weeks before the election uh, when the, po the big poll came out showing that Labour was doing very badly in its heartlands, mm -hmm. that they finally changed strategy and they started directing the money that had gone to trying to win impossible seats um, in the South and elsewhere. They directed that money back to the North. They put the campaigning resources back in the north, but it all turned out to be far too late. They needed to be doing that from the start. The big tension was between uh, those who felt they should defend, and they lost out in the internal argument, and those who thought they should attack. But and what was that attacking principle based on? I mean, where was the com what, what confidence was feeding that attacking strategy? They was it believe, a, a belief in Corbyn? Yeah, it was a belief in belief Corbyn. Corbyn. It was a belief in his campaigning ability. It was a belief that um, once the dreaded media um, uh, was forced to uh, give them uh, fairer treatment, this is their view, um, just as in 2017 they surprised the doubters, they'd be able to do that again and do it better because they were starting from a better position. They genuinely felt that they could increase their tally of seats and deny Johnson his majority. They thought that they really thought that was possible. So, so when that when that strategy shifted, and it, and it became clear that things were going pretty badly. How much attention was then shifted to preserving Corbynism to to the project as much as to winning a campaign, an election campaign? Well, I think it was very noticeable that on the day that it emerged through various briefings that the strategy had changed, uh, the party then said that more prominence would be given to the, li the likes of uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Angela Rayner, Laura Pidcock, uh, Richard Bergen, People who were known to be Eurosceptic, Leavers, Northern, and these are the people who the um, the the group around Corbyn uh, want to see wanted to see promoted, and and will hope that they'll carry on the flame after he's gone. The scale of the defeat in my opinion, makes that um, less likely than it was. But there is no doubt that those people that they uh, said they were giving greater prominence to later in the campaign um, are the people who've, who will be out there, first of all, trying to succeed him. Yeah. They, will, they will alter the message. They, they, will, they will be, I think, more palatable to the voting public than, uh, than Corbyn, but um, they've, they've made a running start because they're the people who are out there during the campaign. Phil, thank you very much for joining us. So where do we go from here? When Ed Miliband was defeated in 2015, he said very simply, I take absolute and total responsibility for our defeat. And he resigned straight away, even though some people were advising him not to. Jeremy Corbyn hasn't done that. He's promised not to lead Labour into the next general election as if that was really an option, but he hasn't taken responsibility in the same way and he's staying on as leader to oversee a period of quiet reflection, as he's called it. I'm joined by Matt Dancona, another one of my fellow editors here at Tortoise. Matt, what's really going on here? Well, Corbyn is 
decided to stick around for what he calls a period of reflection. Now, I think that he, he should spend a lot of time of that period of reflection looking at his reflection in the bathroom mirror. But I think what that's code for is a, a period of time where he, as the, the continuing to be the figurehead of the defeated left-wing faction, can, as it were, try and engineer a successor who is in his ideological model. And they'll want him to hang around as long as possible. Actually, this is unrealistic because he is going to be the subject of that reflection and he really can't be uh, the chairman of the, the inquiry committee. Mm. He can't mark his own homework. The process of electing a new Labour leader does take a while. But how does that actually work? So who controls the process for deciding well, the, the, the next the, leader? The, what happens is that you have to be, the candidates have to be nominated by 10% of the parliamentary party, the MPs, and the MEPs, so mm-hmm. roughly in this case, sort of 21, 22, something like that. And then it goes out to the membership, who are 485,000 or so. Mm. And it's done on a kind of knockout system. And the whole process can take a number of months. So the, normally the best thing to do is for the leader that's lost to step down and for an acting leader to preside over the process like Harriet Harman did, mm. for example. And so I think that something like that might happen in so this instance. So maybe John McDonnell. Someone will, like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, someone who is, doesn't have um, a dog in the fight yeah. uh, is definitely not in the race and, you know, but, can, but has the authority to preside over the process. So we're getting a clear picture now about how the Labour left are explaining this defeat and they're obviously yeah. saying it's, it's about Brexit, not a repudiation of economic policies. Some even saying it's not to do with Corbyn. I mean, what, what do you think to that? Well, I think it's nonsense, uh, but it was inevitable because um, the whole project, the whole Corbyn project was more geared to gaining control of the party and its machinery and embedding Corbynite ideology into that than it was about getting into government. Very predictably, the left have rushed out and rushed out immediately after the exit poll to say this is all the fault of of centrists and Blairites and the media. and But if there's to be an answer to this, the left has to be held to account as much as, in, as any other dominant faction has been in the past. It's not good at that. It does have control of the party. And what will be interesting, interesting to see is how far the membership of the party pressure the sort of dominant factions to say, look, you know, this is really serious. This is an extinction level event. We do need to have an honest conversation about the future because mm-hmm. Labour tends to do well when it embraces the future. It, it you know, it won in 1945, mm. it won in 1964, it won in 1997. In this election, it looked very much backwards. It looked like an old fashioned party. Mm. And I think the members, you know, who who are not all extraordinarily left wing uh, in the sense that they, you know, they have no open mindedness, will, will, you know, they want to get back into power. Yeah. They'll want to deal with reality. And so it will be a very interesting debate, I think. Thanks, Matt. So all of this leaves one final question, and that is, if the left isn't lefty and it's not avowedly socialist, then what's on offer? James Harding, founder of Tortoise and my editor, is here. Where do we go from here, James? Where does it take us? Well, Basha, I think into the great unknown, because the curious thing about this election is that there was one party with a really radical agenda, a manifesto of serious changes, nationalizations, reconfiguration of the role of the state, and that was Jeremy Corbyn's Labour. Mm. And by contrast, Boris Johnson's manifesto 
lacked ambition if it were a letter to Santa. It didn't tell you much about what he wanted to do beyond getting Brexit done. And so we now have a government which is really quite unpredictable. It's got a faction of it that is, if you like, small state Tories. But there's a big part of Boris Johnson's government that really does want to remake the public square, that's willing to intervene on issues of infrastructure, that's got to deliver for these new Tory constituencies in the north. So you don't know what the Tory offer is. And of course, as a result, you also now don't know what the Labour offer is. And the old social democratic offer of some way in which the state intervenes to offset the excesses of the market, that's no longer on the table. Mm. And the 2020s are going to be remade in the centre and on the left in light of what technology is doing to us, in the light of the climate crisis, in the light of who we think we are and the extent to which we're getting older as a society. So strangely enough, there is something potentially energising, I think, in all of this, (laughs) that at the end of this very, very long night, well, a very long (laughs) night, you actually have to stand back and say, look, politics for a while is over. We're not going to have elections every few, feels like every few years, but feels like every few minutes. We're going to have a period where there's a party in power for five years. And so people are either going to put their energy into rethinking other parties, Lib Dems and Labour, or what I suspect, those passions around politics are going to move into activism and they're going to move into activism around causes. And that gives people, people like us, Mm. an opportunity to do something. That's a lovely, hopeful place to end this podcast. Thank you, James. Thanks, Basha. Podcasts aren't the only thing that we do at Tortoise. We also publish articles every day on our app and online. And we're a slow news publisher, so we're interested in what's driving the news, not breaking news. And if listening to this has made you want to learn more about us, then please go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code POD50 to become a member for just £1 a week. That's half our usual price. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it and how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.